thank you, Elisa, for leading us in prayer that way. Mm, so much to pray for. We um, are in this sermon series um, called The Good Life. Uh, yesterday at the Fall Festival, we were standing around watching a football game because um, the Georgia-Florida game was on and talking, and somebody, we were talking about another team that I won't mention, Alabama, and somebody who I won't mention said, I hate that team, and then said, oh, I can't say that, because the pastor last week talked about murder and hate and how we can't do that. It's like, yeah, you just could wish they lose all the time or something. I don't know. Anyways, it's good to hear that we're thinking about the things that the Bible says. Um, Today we have uh, another passage we're going to come to in a moment, but before we do that, I want to envision with you. I wanted to try to find one of these, but the fact is I don't have one. Um, And it's this thing that when I was a kid driving in the car, riding in the car with my dad driving, and we were on a road trip, he would ask my mom to get out, which would be like under the seat, and she would reach under the seat and start pulling this thing out that was really big and long and start unfolding in it. It looked like a sunscreen that would cover the entire dash, but it was a map. And it was on paper, and it was an atlas that had like pages for every state trying to figure out where you were. Like it was a guaranteed way to crash, right? You can't look at that and still see the road or even a windshield. Um, It was massive. It's the way that you used to have to drive when you were trying to get directions. But Thank goodness technology improved things. Then we went to MapQuest. You may remember that. You could just type where you wanted to go and it would give you the directions, print it out with turn-by-turn instructions on a piece of paper like this size so you could actually see the road. And then, thankfully, you know, we've gone past that and we just have a phone that can do all kinds of things, give you directions, reroute you in live time, tell you where wrecks are, all kinds of things, right? Man. And so we've remapped the way we do things. And that remapping from... Paper to digital is a huge cultural shift. And the cultural shifts that we are seeing in our country aren't simply about technology and paper to digital. It also includes morality. One of the key remapping things that leads to objections to Christianity is to say that as society remaps its morality, Christianity requires you to wear this ethical straitjacket. And it's like you're stuck in and it's so restricting. And it's just unreasonable, unthinkable to ask. And so those who are, who are opposed to it or, and are skeptical about it and just uncertain think, you know, they'll say things like the Bible or, or the church just dictates everything you must think, feel, and do. There's no, no room for individual freedom. We're not encouraged to make our own moral decisions or uh, to choose what is right or wrong. And, you know, we, we all know that with freedom that we're all supposed to be authentic and be free to choose for ourselves what we want to do. And, you shouldn't feel guilty about anything unless you, unless you didn't do what you were doing to be true to your own truth, and then you should feel guilty about that because you've got to have your own truth. And that's kind of what our society is saying, and so when, when they hear what Christianity says, it feels like this straitjacket. And, and one of my responses to that as a pastor would be to say something that Tim Keller had said, and that is this, that your individual creation of truth removes your right to moral outrage. Let me say it another way. Having your truth means you can't challenge another person's truth. If it's big T truth, you can't. Right? It, 
Let me ask you this question. Is there anybody, if you're, if you're struggling with this and thinking, yeah, Christianity is a straitjacket, I just don't, I don't quite get it. Um, yeah, let me ask you this question. Is there anything in the world today in which you would say that whatever is happening should stop? That somebody should stop doing that because it's not good, because it's, it's not helpful, it's because it's wrong? School shootings, rape, war, I don't, we could go on listening to things. Any of that? That even if somebody on the other side whose truth they had said they should do it, you would say, well, no, in this case, something different has to happen. Because if you say that, then what you were doing is saying your truth, your morality is higher than their truth, and they must submit to you in that. So the question I have for you then is, why is it okay for some people to assert terms of morality, but not okay for Christians to do that? Let me make one other observation about this. If people decide their own truth, their own morality, then you need to recognize you're also at their mercy for whatever their morality dictates. Now, in fairness, that also means that as Christians, God's morals are much higher than society's truth, but his mercy is also so much better. So as we read about the remapping of our cultural morality, we must know God's word if we're going to live faithfully. So follow along with me. We're going to read the uh, commandment from Deuteronomy 5:18, and then go on to Matthew chapter 5. So here's uh, these words. You shall not commit adultery. That's the commandment. Jesus goes on to talk about this in Matthew chapter 5 with these words in verses 27 and following. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of God. Since we did not read places in the Bible where it is affirming the beauty of the way God designed us as, uh, as sexual beings and and where we see the goodness of that, such as Song of Songs or Genesis chapter 2, you may think the Bible is anti-sex, and that's not true at all. It's, uh, it is for it. God designed it. But anything good can be misused and abused. Our society it tells us to do whatever you want with your body. As long as it feels good and it's up to you and you're not hurting anybody else, it's your decision, you do what you want. In fact, we're so progressive that you can do whatever you want as long as it's not hurting others. And marriage is also an outdated institution, so you may or may not like that. Do whatever you want. And if you violate marriage, it doesn't really matter because it's all about you and your body. What Jesus, though, is teaching is that marriage is God's good design and that sex is to be enjoyed specifically within the bonds of marriage. And right, so the, the title of this sermon comes from the text, Do Not Commit Adultery. But the positive side of that is to live faithfully 
to live faithfully. There's two main points I have, but each has three sub-points, so that's kind of like six points, so we better get going. Um, the first, uh, the main point is this. The good life promotes and protects faithfulness in marriage. What does that mean? What does that mean? It's prohibiting. It means it's going to prohibit act of, the act of adultery. That is sex outside of marriage. It prohibits the act of adultery. Um, and so even before marriage, um, it's betraying your marriage partner whom you are to be completely faithful. So when you're married or before you're married, any sex that's outside of marriage, the Bible is saying that's wrong, and the biblical ethic is to wait to have sex until you are married and to only have sex with the person to whom you're married. Like, that's a high standard. It is a high standard. But it's not only interested in your actions. The command, as Jesus explains to us, even gets to the desires of your heart, right? So the, the second part of this part of this is that it prohibits a heart of lust. We live in a highly sexualized society. You know that. I know that. We may think that's very different from any other time in history. It is and it isn't. Um, human beings are the same um, and have been for thousands of years. The ancient world uh, was very similar, but technology was different, so it wasn't as easy to access. You had to like see it in hieroglyphic paintings or cave drawings or whatever, but, but lust is always there. And what is lust? If we're talking about this, what is lust? Lust is a desire for something good that is uncontrolled and then abused. So the thing that you want is not necessarily bad. It can be a good thing. Um, let me give you a couple of examples. Food. Food's delicious. I love food. But cravings for food that lead to uncontrolled eating and abuse of that lead to obesity. And then the Bible says that's, that's wrong. That's an un, un, uncontrolled desire. Um, or for alcohol, craving for alcohol to numb your pain, right? And being drunk on it, the Bible would say, that's wrong. You're not controlling that desire, right? So, so desire is, is a thing, and the craving of it uh, in terms of lust would be the craving uh, after somebody else's spouse, after something that is not yours, looking intently with desire to have um, and to desire pleasure from. It's, it's this contrast, Dan Allender, the counselor, tells us. It's the, it's the contrast between the consumer seeking to be gratified and the lover seeking to serve. That's that difference in lust. There's many different biblical words that talk about sexual immorality and adultery. And the one for adultery is, uh, I think it, here it's Moitea, if I remember correctly. The one where it talks about fornication toward the end of that passage is a world a Greek word, porneia, which might sound familiar to you because it's the word from which we get pornography. Um, you may remember decades ago there was a TV commercial. might have only been a decade ago, but it was also like four decades ago, about chewing gum, Big Red. And with Big Red, the little jingle was so you could kiss a little longer and make it last a little longer with Big Red. Great commercial. Today it's been replaced by a blue pill. We know that pornography is a huge problem in our society. It is not just a problem that men have. One-third of porn use is by women. We also know from studies that it is linked to sexual violence. We also know that the industry 
is largely sustained by human sex trafficking. We know that modern science, uh, behavioral scientists are telling us, and neuroscientists are telling us the damages that are occurring in our bodies and in our culture because of pornography. For example, in 2019, Neuroscience News reports, quote, science is only just beginning to reveal the neurological repercussions of porn consumption, but it's already clear that the mental health and sex lives of its widespread audience are suffering catastrophic effects. From depression to ED, porn appears to be hijacking our neural wiring with dire consequences. Studies go on. If you look at websites, um, secular websites, like the National Center on Sexual Exploitation or Your Brain on Porn, and they've shown how porn addiction rewires your brain by triggering dopamine receptors, which has the same effect as when you're using drugs. And so it's addictive in that way. And it rewires your brain that you want more of that and continue to do it. We, we know this, or should know this, and maybe you didn't know that, but that's true. What I want you to understand is, one, is the severity of it. It's a real issue, a real problem. Two, I want you to see that our progressive secular society in its behavioral sciences and mental health sciences is recognizing it's not good. For all the remapping we've done of our culture, we're coming around to go, oh, wait a minute, there's problems with this. Which makes me want to say, when God gives you a command, it really is for the good life. He knows what he's saying because he's the author and designer of life. It's not good for your body or mental health, but it's not only that. Jesus says it's actually endangering to your soul. He talked about that in verse 29 where he said it's better for you to gouge your eye out, pluck your eye out, rather than to go into hell for the whole body to be thrown into hell. What Jesus is communicating, he's saying is if you persist in sexual sins, Without repentance, you're on a path to hell. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the danger, right? And he's saying that to, to the religious leaders of the day who, and we'll get to this in a second, who are kind of uh, dismissing lots of this. And Jesus is saying, no, it's really dangerous because you're not listening to God's word. And so if you persist in that, you need to hear the danger of it. He says, in fact, it's so dangerous, it's better to not have your eyes, right, than your whole body to be in hell. That's the seriousness of it. By the way, um, if you come to see one of our pastors or staff to get help with sexual addiction, or if you come to see a Wellspring counselor to get help with that, we want to help you. We definitely want to do that. We, we know what life is like. We know the realities of that. If you want to come and you simply want us to affirm what you're doing so you feel better about it, don't expect that. We love you too much to lie to you we want to help and we want to be gentle in doing that because we know what it's like but we're not going to just lie to affirm whatever thing you're chasing that leads you away from God Jesus uses this language because it's serious it's also important to recognize that Jesus is using language while serious he's using it in a hyperbolic way which way is it hyperbolic and which way is it not He's, it's not hyperbolic to say that 
a path into sin leads toward hell. In other words, if you're not repentant, you don't look to God and say, God, forgive me, rescue me, right? And you pursue this path that it leads to hell. That's not hyperbole. That's hyperbole. That's reality. What is hyperbole is that you are not required to gouge your eye out when you lust. What the point Jesus is making is, if you were to do that, it would stop. The point he's saying is, stop, because the consequences are serious. Find a way to stop. And the good news is you can stop. The good news that we're learning in science about the brain is that while the brain can be rewired one way, it can also get rewired another way. That's not easy, but it can be done. The brain is amazing in its neuroplasticity and what it does. So your brain can be rewired to break addiction. It's not easy. It takes lots of discipline, right? I mean, you know, so Alcoholics Anonymous meets in our building a couple times a week, right? Any addiction, whatever it is, your brain can be rewired, and it's not easy. But you have to find a way to institute discipline so that when you crave it, you have something else to do. You have something else that you will turn to to distract your brain so it doesn't fire on those pathways and continue to feed that, that drug-addictive-like state. But you do have to stop, right? We don't tell addicts, drug addicts, say, to slowly reduce their drug use until they no longer desire it. Just wean off of it. Now, that may be an overstatement because I know there's some medical things in where you do slowly wean people off certain drugs, but for instance, like, the, at least the drug addicts did when I was walking the streets of Philadelphia helping people there and stuff, and the, the heroin and the cocaine, it wasn't like, just eh, reduce your, your use a little bit, you'll probably be fine. No, it was like, stop and get into rehab now. And they go through withdrawal, and it stinks. It's bad. But you got to stop, and you got to start changing the ways. What we tend to do spiritually is we tend to bargain with God. And we tend to be like, okay, God, I will read my Bible, and I will do that uh, daily. Okay, maybe five times a week. And, I, and I'll try to be better about not lusting. And we try to balance out that by saying I'll do more of this, and maybe that I'll outweigh what, what I'm doing that's wrong over here. And, and I want to suggest to you, reading your Bible is a good thing. It's one of the things that will be helpful it is not a balancing act to just try to get balance on the scale. Ooh, I did enough good things to outweigh the bad things. That's not the way we do the Christian life. What you have to do is actually stop one, right? Just like we would tell an addict that they have to stop, to end it. Jesus says, end it, stop it, get in rehab with a counselor, with friends for accountability, with spiritual um, mentors, go to church, Right? There's lots of things that will have to be put around you in order to help you break any addiction, including one that, that is uh, geared toward lust in this way. And the reality is this. The addiction can be broken. But while the addiction can be broken, in this life you will still battle temptations. And Jesus tells us this, that sin will always be there in this life, this side of heaven. And so you have to be in the battle. And you have to recognize that relapse is possible, but repentance is too. 
right? And this is the beauty of Christianity, that when it holds up this high moral standard, it also gives you high mercy. And it doesn't simply cancel you. Well, for the sake of time, let's keep moving on here. So the next thing is that it protects unlawful divorce. So it protects unlawful divorce. The, he talks about adultery in here and, and, and uh, divorce. And let me just try to get this quickly to say this. The rabbis that Jesus is talking to and the Pharisees, what they did basically was they wanted to commit adultery, but they couldn't do it because they knew that was wrong. So the way they could get on to the next person that they wanted was just to make divorce easier. And so the rabbis changed the law and that Moses had given in Deuteronomy that God gave through Moses to include reasons that you could get divorced, to include things if you grew apart or if you, quote, didn't like her cooking. But it's really not any different today, right? Now we live in an age of no-fault divorce and you can just divorce for whatever reason you want. Um, and it was their way to get on to the next woman, but to do so legally by making divorce easier. And Jesus is saying, no. He rebukes them saying, no, you can't do that. You don't make divorce easier. You hold the high standard of marriage that is, that's only uh, to be divorce only permissible for sexual immorality. And then Paul includes abandonment in that too, which is also uh, usually linked in that. But Jesus recognized what he's doing. In a society in which women didn't have a lot of equality with the men in that society. He's protecting the women. He's saying, you can't just dismiss them and leave them economically broken on their own and move on to the next one. No. You signed up for a deal in marriage saying, you are in this together. And he's saying, you've got to stick to that. Our society is similar in that we make divorce easy, right? And while we have more equality with men and women, which is good, somehow now we have come to the point where um, people will, some women will claim patriarchy as an excuse to mistreat their husband, even if he isn't severely mistreating them. I say severely because everybody's sinning and doing stuff wrong against each other all the time. But because where we are in our progressive culture, now, patriarchy, and again, that's a broad term, but Again, that's, that's bad. So anything you can do to overthrow that is automatically good. So if you take that marriage and you assume that, well, man means patriarchy, then anything I can do to overthrow that marriage means whatever the woman can do could be acceptable and right, according to our society. You say, no, that's not what Jesus is saying either. What Jesus is saying is both men and women are created equal before God. Both are his image bearers and bear dignity and must be respected as such. And that only if you know the love of God for you Will you be able to love one another well in that way so that your marriage actually becomes the good life and flourishes together? And if you are living in the midst of a struggling and broken marriage, maybe vows have been broken or lustful addictions have been exposed, you need to know there's hope. There's hope for you. Jesus is in the business this is Jesus' business. Brokenness into beauty. That's his business across all facets of life. Coming to redeem, to save, to rescue. To take what has been turned into chaos and disorder and put it back the right way. That's what Jesus does. He turns brokenness into beauty. It's not pain-free. 
it's not easy. And it's quite likely that if you're in a relationship right now in this struggle, that you're one, there's going to be many uh, obstacles and oppositions, but one of your biggest enemies you're going to face is shame. There's a great book on shame that I'll show you because I stuffed it under here somewhere. The Soul of Shame by Kurt Thompson. I highly recommend that book. Um, I'm only three quarters of the way through, but I keep underlining and going back and looking at it again, and it's making me think a lot. It's not an easy read, but it's very good. But shame might be your biggest enemy. What does shame do? Shame wants to keep everything in isolation and hidden. It says, nope, don't talk about that. You can't do that. You can't feel that way. You can't think that way. Just keep it all back. Hide it. In the garden, when Adam and Eve first sin and rebel against God, what do they do? They run and they cover themselves with fig leaves, right? They make a way to cover themselves because they knew they were naked and they were ashamed of one another now. See the, the hiding that's happening, the isolation that's occurring. Shame wants to keep things hidden and isolated. It wants to keep the darkness there. And the, the trick here, the key here, is the pathway to healing is to become vulnerable against the shame of hiding and isolation. Right? The only way to overcome shame is to do the very thing shame doesn't want you to do. And it's to be vulnerable and to own what's happened. And to start dealing with it. That's not easy because it's going to be painful and hurtful as you expose hurts done to your spouse or to your friend, whoever it is. It's going to be painful because it's going to cause a lot of heartache and wounding. One of the things that Kurt Thompson says in this book that struck me is he says, when God, this is not an exact quote, but this is the substance of it. When God created men and women in his image, he was open to heartache and wounding. He gave them free will and said, okay, here's what you do. Follow me. You could not, and the way to do that is if you just choose that one tree, but everything else is yours. And they disobey. And at some point, they eat from that tree and they choose not to obey God and not to follow him. God could have been like, well, we tried. Didn't work. Let's move on to the next planet and try again. We'll just turn that one into a black hole. But that's not what he did. What did God do? Not only in the act of creating when he took on risk to be hurt and wounded, in the act of redeeming, he says, I am going to go become human myself like them and take on the risk of being hurt, wounded, beaten, mocked, scorned, and killed. Why? Because he's, he loves that deeply. He loves that deeply. Now why, you may be wondering, when we talk about this and talk so much about sex and sexuality, why does God care about my sexuality? Why are so many rules about this? And this is the, the second... Uh, point here, second main point, is this. The good life of, faith, of faithfulness in marriage points us to God's faithfulness to his vows. The good life of faithfulness in marriage points us to God's faithfulness to his vows. This is why God cares. God knows what is good for you. He gave us sex to teach us about the most vulnerable and intimate and pleasurable experience as a small foretaste of what relationship with him is like of joy and vulnerability and being known and loved. 
it's a foretaste of heaven that is going to be better than you know what. He knows us and he still loves us forever. The gospel is the frame that holds the picture of your marriage. And idolatry, the Bible says, is the same thing as adultery. Why does it say that? Because what God is saying is, I have uh, bonded myself to you. I have covenanted myself to you in marriage. And I will be faithful to you. And you also need to be faithful to me. But what do we as humans do regularly? What did Israel do again and again? We walk away to chase other lovers. You and I have hearts of spiritual adultery. And we chase after others. And what do we do about that? What does God do about that? Why does he care so much about this topic? Because it's one of the most intimate, personal things we do, right? And God says, I am that intimately and personally interested in you. I know you. And I want you to know me, to experience my fullness in my life. One of the great ways he does this is through the prophet Hosea, or one of the great ways he shows us this is the prophet Hosea, who lives in the 700s B.C. Hosea now, this is what God tells Hosea to do. He says, I want you to go take a wife. Your wife, the, Gomer is the woman he finds to take as a wife. And God gives us a, as an illustration of the way Israel has been unfaithful to himself. So Gomer was promiscuous. Hosea, and it's known, and Hosea is told to go take her and marry her uh, to demonstrate that kind of love that God has. Then after they're married, Gomer commits adultery and goes to live with another man um, and, and leaves Hosea. And God is using this to compare it to what Israel is doing with him, saying, you have committed adultery against me. And, and if you don't think this is true, then recognize, I'm just going to flash, because of time, I'm just going to flash through some verses really quickly here. What happens is God says, first, you've been caught. You've been caught. And how do we know this? Because in Hosea 2, verse 5, he says, their mother's been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food, my water, my wool, my linen, oil in my drink, right? I'm going to go after other lovers. In verse 2, he goes on and says, rebuke your mother, rebuke, rebuke her. Let her remove that adulterous look from her face and unfaithfulness from between her breasts. So you've been caught, Israel. You've been caught. I know what you're doing. You're cheating. And then God speaks to Israel again through Hosea and says, and you're condemned. Because you've been caught in this act of adultery, you are now condemned. Again, and he mentioned it in verse 2, right? You're not my wife. I'm not your husband. He's withdrawing privileges. In verse 9, he says a similar thing. He says, I will take back my grain offering when it ripens. I, I, and wine. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm going to let you be totally exposed for your adultery. And you're going to be condemned. And I'm going to withdraw my provisions of caring for you and let you care for yourself and be on your own, Israel. Let's see how your fields produce. Let's see if your wine is as good when you're saying, God, I don't want your help in this. And so he says, Israel, you have been caught and you have been condemned. And we then think that like, oh man, this is over. This is bad news for Israel. Here comes, here comes the, the torture and everything else and it's done. What does God instruct Hosea to do? what we see is that when they've been caught and condemned, then God says, you're being courted. You're being courted. 
again to marriage. What? That doesn't make any sense. If you've been caught and condemned, there's no way I'm taking you back. And God says, I'm taking you back. In fact, despite your adultery, I'm going to pursue you to win you back. Listen to the language in verse 14 when he says, Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I'm going to lead her into the wilderness where she realizes she's got nothing without me, and I'm going to speak tenderly to her. Tenderly. In verse 16, it says, In that day when I allure you and you come back, you will not call me, or you will call me my husband and no longer my master. Now, why is that? Because what Hosea is instructed to do is go to Samaria where Gomer is and to buy her back because she was in slavery. He buys her out of slavery and redeems her and brings her back, but doesn't keep her as master-slave, restores her as wife. And God's saying, I will restore you, Israel. The marital union will be restored. In verse 20, what does he say? I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. God is saying, I will be faithful to you, even when you have been unfaithful to me. Because this is who I am. This is my heart for you. And the reason that he talks then about sexuality in the ways that he does is because it's the closest thing to touch our hearts and our souls. And God is saying, I know you that well. And I love you despite your unfaithfulness to me. I know there's marriages who've experienced this kind of suffering and these kinds of issues and and are now experiencing redeeming love. And that's a good thing. If yours is struggling, then I want you to know there's hope. Just like God pursues Israel and goes after, there's hope for you. Yes, spiritually for you and God, and yes, in your marriage, to be pursued like God pursues Israel. And it begins by loving like God loves. That's hard to do. When there's deep wounds, long history of betrayal, to love like God loves, it's what love does. It pays the price. I also want you to recognize that there's a difference between forgiving a spouse and regaining trust. Right? Forgiveness is something after some anger and maybe even some rage, right? And, and all that, that somebody may come to and say, okay, I forgive you for what you've done. And forgiveness is, means I'm not going to hold that against you or make you suffer. I'm not going to punish you for that, right? Because I'm, I'm letting that part go and forgiving it. Okay. But trusting and being vulnerable takes more time because it requires that vulnerability. And shame is involved. It's always a battle against shame, both by the one who betrayed and the betrayer. Or the, yeah, the one who was betrayed and the betrayer. And so it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying it's possible because this is what God does. He takes brokenness and he makes beauty. And you got to learn to love like God loves. He's always faithful to his vows. If you're on the run from God today, and I want you to stop, look around and see if God is pursuing you. See if he's chasing you down, maybe through conviction of the Spirit, maybe through a friend who's letting you know they're praying for you, or maybe through somebody who's invited you to have a drink together and talk about life or to invite you to church. 
I'll leave you with this last thing here, this last slide. Living the good life is not just happy poetry like, like Hosea chapter 2. It's not just hopeful optimism or romantic feelings. No, living the good life counts the cost like God does and loves anyways. And if you know God, you have the power to do that. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be people who walk in your ways, but I pray that that isn't the first thing we think of. I pray that we will be people who are so overwhelmed by your love for us, so overwhelmed that we are the adulterer, that we have, as the one, are the ones who have walked away from you, so overwhelmed by that you chased us down and pursued us to love us, that that would change our hearts being that intimately known and that vulnerable that you would remove shame from us and help us then to walk in your ways. Lord, would your, would your love be the thing that captures us, that compels us, that constrains us to obey you? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.